Welcome to the show, and don't forget to check out this month's Nebula exclusive, Giant Space Monsters, as we explore everything from Space Kraken to Giant Sandworms. To get access and help support the show while hearing every episode early and ad-free, plus hours of bonus content, check out go.nebula.tv slash and use my code IsaacArthur. Good afternoon everyone and welcome to another Science and Futurism with Isaac Arthur live stream uh, at the end of the month live stream Q&A chat, and as usual we are joined by my lovely co-host and wife, Sarah Fowler Arthur, who will be taking your questions from our moderators in the chat, and as usual if you put the questions in the chat, try to put them in as a uh, concisely and legibly as possible to increase the odds of getting asked and answer it sanely as per our incident with the vacuum raccoons from some years back. So. Oh my. <laughs> so do we have any questions to start off with? Well, the first question uh, that we should talk about is your shirt. Oh yeah. So, so for those of you who didn't notice, uh, I am wearing a short that, uh, well, if you're not getting the joke, you probably won't get it now, but I did turn 42 uh, last week and uh, this is the birthday present or one of the birthday presents my wife got me and... Uh, She's a very awesome person, <laughs> so uh, obviously I'm a big Douglas Adams fan, and of course we all know what the secret to life, the universe, and everything is, and I try to convince myself this time around that I actually turn 42 and stay there for a few years, unlike before because I've been 26 for some years, and uh, sometime on my 10th, 26th birthday I decided to be mid-30s for a bit, now I'm 42 and I'll stay that way for mm, 10, 12 years probably. <laughs> So. <laughs> oh, well, we'd like to welcome to the live stream today uh, the first few people who said hi. We have Silver Johnson, Player 67543, Sentry 22, uh, Hexalus Armaeus, and something that I can't read that is very long and random but says hello. People do have the most interesting username sometimes. <laughs> sometimes. So the first question here is actually from Timothy Kuiper, mm -hmm. and he says, since the James Webb Telescope is an infrared telescope, are the pictures produced basically a Photoshop image created from raw data? Um, almost every deep space picture you see is, I think Photoshop would be the kind of way of seeing it. Um, the, the Space Web Telescope, unlike Hubble, does not look in a frequency that you and I can see with our eyes. Uh, it would be looking at, I think it's 0.6 microns to about 30 microns, and that would correspond to about um, about 20 times hotter than the human body is in in absolute Kelvin. Um, no, that's not quite right. Uh, to, um, to about half all temperature. So you'd be able to see relatively cool planets and then dimmer stars, red dwarfs, things like that. You're not that you don't pick up normal stars anyway, but you're not looking at anything with visual light coming out of it. So um, when I was in with the Air Force way, way back when I was 19 or what it was, we had this nice little infrared viewer that you could set the temperature range to, the frequency range on the top and bottom at, and he just said to show you that image with like uh, the white or red is like the coldest temperature up to black and the hottest, and just shows you that range as, you know, those colors. That's basically what we're doing here. These are real images. But they wouldn't be visible to your eye. So it'd be kind of like if we uh, if we had something that was intensely one shade of blue, but many different shades in that range, we might take that image and Photoshop it so the stuff that was very light blue was green and very dark blue was purple, just to make it more visually understandable. So it's kind of like a radar image, right, of clouds and rain only. We're not looking at water yeah, content. Well, well, yeah, I mean, radar images is actually one of the big ones, and those are usually microwave, but. Uh, Radar is uh, absolutely turned into something that you and I can see when we get to see that on the clouds. 
obviously we don't show them just various shades of white because that doesn't help as much so we do a color map or you know heat maps sometimes those things so it's a real image but it's not one that your eye could see that is one cool thing about being say a post image you might actually have eyeballs you could see in that frequency but you need very large and cord eyeballs to see that the James Webb telescope has to operate at uh chronic temperatures and would actually be or cryogenic temperatures would be able to actually see these things so well, the next question is going to be from D.T. Finham. Hey, Isaac, in your opinion, to what extent would modern languages diverge over the next 300 years as we spread out across the solar system? Um, you know, I was uh, actually was playing Dungeons and Dragons, or actually Pathfinder, but uh, last night with some friends, and by, by coincidence, my character did not speak the same language as most of, most of the party, so I was enjoying role-playing basically someone who has a very broken understanding of language and didn't get euphemisms. Uh, which you have so much fun with. But if you've ever read anything like the early 1900s and then compared to like now in English, for instance, there's some big differences, not just, you know, regional in terms of expressions, but flavors. But the language is still pretty understandable. You go back 300 years, though, that would be, what, early 1700s. You can still read it, but there's definitely some big differences. If you ever try to read Old English, pre-Shakespeare English, right, it's almost unintelligible. You, you know, you can train yourself to read it at speed, but you're not really reading English anymore. Um, you're going to have a lot of language divergence even with inside the same language, right? We've kept that fairly standardized. Uh, at the same time, though, I think that what we'll see in a lot of cases is more towards a move to uh, very complex automated translation. So you'll see more divergence while you also at the same time see more standardization, if that makes sense. So. <laughs> Art thou ready for the next questionist husband? I, I think I am, dear <laughs> Scooter GSP, if our ancestors would believe that today's technology was magic, what would be one of the first technologies of the future that we today would consider magic if we were to witness it? Um, you know, that's actually kind of a tricky one because we, we say the clock tech thing that uh, certain advanced technologies are indistinguishable from magic, and we probably need to put a caveat on that. Our ancestors did not think that magic was magic anymore. They didn't really see that discriminating line between the two things. It just it worked. There wasn't things are technological or things are magic. There was things that people who either had done something very otherworldly or who were very smart understood. A lot of the alchemists, as well as the early scientists like Kepler and Newton, they were very into mysticism and arcana uh, and the occult. So um, you know, you got to keep that in mind. They didn't have that drawing line there. They just had something like demonic pact magic versus a deep understanding of the sciences, such as astrology. <laughs> Um, and uh, we, you know, it's kind of hard to say what would we think would be kind of like, what would we see right now and say that's magic. And I'm not sure we would be able to do much with that because we are so spoiled on special effects. You know, <laughs> there's very little that we could actually take in with our senses. I think that would be like, that's impossible. So that's hard to say. At the same time, you're still going to be shocked by any technology that's even 20 or 30 years ahead that you've not seen before. Um, that's a great point. And Nikron says, mm -hmm. Hi, Isaac Arthur. Can you recommend a video that details how the magnetic bearings work on an orbital ring? That's a good question. Although I was just thinking, we've been binge watching Jeopardy the last couple of weeks. On, it's on streaming now. And at least and you, they had one episode per season. So we start off like the original episode back from like the year I was born and uh, kind of walked it forward one season at a time, one episode at a time. And you can watch people's fashions change a lot with a lot of the questions that you think of from your Oh, period. yeah. Their hair. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, oh, my yeah. gosh. <laughs> giant giant changes of hairspray usage and shorter pad size and so on. 
Um, and that is another good example of just, you know, you watch old television. One of the things I love about the classics is just all these little differences in technology because they're showing you the most sophisticated things they have. And it's like, well, that's, it looks cheap and boxy. <laughs> Did you mention, so we finally got to the 15th season yeah, yeah, of Jeopardy. Yeah, like, 1998. And it was 15 seasons before they actually were able to pan around and view the audience. Yeah. The first 14, they only showed mm-hmm. the guests and the host. And I liked when the old LED lights on the one went out, too. Uh, you couldn't see the guy's score because it was like a little broken digital clock thing. <laughs> Did you forget the question? Oh, the magnetic bearings one, yeah. <laughs> Obviously, I forgot the question. <laughs> Do you have any videos on that? Um, we've not done one on magnetic bearings. I remember with Phil Swan from the Atlantis Project, we talked about the tethered ring. He was uh, discussing the magnetic bearings option for that a little bit too, because it's a very similar platform. There might be one on there discussing that. That might be something we want to do a video at, but for the most part, no. I don't usually get too much in the weeds on EM stuff. So we have a lot of technology questions today. Oh, Albert God. Jackinson, welcome back to the show. Good afternoon, Isaac and Sarah. Advances in everyday technology, such as BCIs, are often discussed. But what advances are in store for scientific instruments, such as drills, microscopes, 3D printers, etc.? That's a really good question, especially on the 3D printers one. Um, there are certain limitations as to what you can do with 3D printing that there are odds with all desire to have things like the Star Trek replicator. Um, one of those is the sticky fingers problem. Another is just how do you make something that's actually storable. You know, this probe could be one atom across. Good. And it will snap like something that's exactly one atom across would. Uh, you get a lot of reuse on these things. And tiny little machines are not very durable, and that's probably why viruses are about as small as you get with these things. Um, you know, compared to like a cell, which is much bigger. Um, I would say, hmm, in terms of digital instrumentation, ones you'll see that are a lot bigger will be ones that are built into your phone. That would be your horizontal things for people having on them. I would say, and, and if anyone knows how to do this, you'll probably be the next billionaire if you get it working. Uh, a phone app that could scan your foot size, right? Your foot size and shape, right? So that you could just go ahead and put that into Amazon, same as you do like your car type or whatever it is, or your clothing size, and it knows your custom foot size. And instead of going back to like the classic cobbler, it mails you uh, the shoe that fits you perfectly, right? As opposed to your nine and a half wide or whatever it happens to be, that's my shoe size. Um, and, uh, you know, that's, that's the kind of things you see in someone's phone. The ability to scan yourself, and have your current exact food, you know, size, right? Um, you'll make your faces at me. Okay. <laughs> Sometimes my wife gives me cues. I don't know what that was. Some of them like speed up, get to the next question, get on with it. And the other ones you're speaking too quietly. Yeah, I think that's the cutoff signal for stopping answering the question. But I didn't get that one. <laughs> so, but those are the kind of instrumentation ones. When your phone can scan your temperature, right? Uh, then it can also start warning you if you've got like signs of flu. You'll, you'll be able to tell you right away. That's the the tiny little instrumentation things that make big difference. For the other ones, that's a little harder to say. You got options for, like multi tools that are made of memory metal that could turn into a different type of tool. That would be an option for something you might have in the garage or even on your person. Your sonic screwdriver equivalents well, those would be pretty awesome. But for scientific instrumentation, probably just weird or strange or more expensive and more touchy because it seems like every generation of high-end scientific equipment falls in that category. The next question is from Dara Cloak, and thank you for the super chat. Do you think the Neanderthals would eventually have built radio telescopes if Homo sapiens never emerged? Hmm. Um, I mean, the kind of question there is, do you think that this piece of technology or this, like, um, 
if Columbus hadn't sailed the sea, right, or something along those lines, who would have done it next? And you say, well, maybe it would have been funded out of England, right? Maybe it would come out of India or China. And you can play that kind of what-if game on that. And the question you always ask is, is technology an inevitability for an intelligent species at that level? You know, um, if uh, if you up and, you know sank into the sea magically, would one of the other cultures have caught up? And my assumption is yes. In terms of technology, I think that that's the way these things tend to progress. Though it can be kind of iffy. Like uh, the Mesoamerican culture never got beyond the Neolithic level in a lot of ways, even though you know in terms of like no metal, right? They have pottery, but no metals. But at the same time, they picked it up almost instantly. So that kind of tells you it's just is there some trigger that sets that off? I'd have difficulty thinking that uh, Neanderthals wouldn't have gotten it at some point, but we don't have enough on their brains. Right? We don't know what their brain structure are like. Modern humans all have the same brains for all practical purposes. Neanderthals would be their slightly different ones, but all we have is their skull. So we don't really know what the, what the layout was that well. Though it could be something they would have picked up be more than, I would not think chimpanzees would ever figure out how to make a radio telescope, but you know, where's that line? And the answer is, until we find better frozen ones somewhere around that allow us to really look at the brain structure and say that better, that's kind of an academic question. Isaac Bordeaux, welcome back to the show. If string theory is proven correct, do you think it would open up any new technologies that other theories of everything would not allow? Um, yeah, I think the thing is, and I would always emphasize this, we got into the idea of the theory of everything in the sense of being able to find all these unified forces together, right? because we had more some other ones. We found out that electromagnetism uh, was the unified force of magnets of electric, uh, you know, electricity and uh, the electric force and the EM photon force. We found these were all the same thing. And we also found out the electroweak force, we call it. It's a combination of the weak and, 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 and uh, electric, electromagnetic forces. And I think that got people into the idea of thinking that that must mean, beyond any doubt, that there would be a gravity unifying force with the other forces. Um, and that may be what, that may be the case, but that's kind of like just saying, well, we found this was connected, thus this one's connected, and therefore the other one must be. I think that's kind of stretching things a bit. Gravity is the first force we figured out, and yet it's the first one we are willing to call the current ones a pseudo force because it really doesn't look anything like the other forces. It's the oddball. It's the it's very very different, and I don't see there's any particular need to have to have it unified. It may well be so, and there's some good theories for that, but you know that's the way one of these theories can kind of. Um, I want to say trick you because that implies something disaster about the process can let you sometimes fool yourself or get distracted into seeing a set of solutions and ignoring other ones. String theory has a lot of that too. You've probably heard me beat up on string theory on the show occasionally. I try not to do it too vocally and it's not because I disagree with the theory. It's beautiful. I love string theory as a basic concept. What bothers me is that it's a very basic theory in terms of evidence for it. There's not a lot of evidence for it. And yet it's often treated as though it was a proven thing. And I feel like that makes people not look favorably on other areas. It's something that's that is hypothetical still should not be advanced to the point that many folks think it's solid in the way that we have relativity. Um, it's great theory, still very much a theory. And the fact that we're very bad at changing things from theory to law to hypothesis, those are mostly naming conventions that are non-standard. So. Speaking of gravity, Clash says, how big of a problem or challenge do you think gravity will be when it comes to colonizing other worlds? Do you think that humans will ever be able to adopt to Martian or lunar gravity? Sure. I mean, to, in terms of like adaptation to these things, um, we have this problem is we know what zero gravity does to the human body because we had to test that in, in, uh, at the space station. Oh, that's actually, you know, we say it's microgravity, but it's actually normal Earth gravity minus a few percent 
but you're inside a centrifugal force thing turning you around so it nullifies out. That's how orbit works. Um, when we went to the moon, we had people under high acceleration and zero acceleration, you know, just gravity uh, for a few days. And then they were on the moon for a couple of days on low gravity and bring them back. So we don't really have any clue what moon gravity does to biology. Right? We can make some guesses, uh, but we haven't built anything like a, a moon gravity space station to look at that or just you know done an actual colony on the moon. Um, Mars, same thing. We don't know. It could be that 1% of gravity is enough. It keeps all the plumbing flowing in the right direction, so to speak. Uh, it means things eventually settle out. Um, and you know, because if you if you haven't even familiar with it with the space station, that place is smelly, and there's like junk floating through there constantly. Ew. Yeah, right. Because nothing falls. So like, if you got spittle coming out of your mouth, anything that wouldn't stick, cracker crumbs, everything is just eek. Right? Maybe it needs a vacuum at one end <laughs> to like filter things. Oh, it's got lots of vacuum all around. <laughs> Filtration. But, Filtration. A little bit of gravity makes it so much better. Um, which is why I tend not to think that there really is a big future for zero gravity habitats because there's no real need to have your habitation areas be zero gravity when just a little bit of spin would fix that problem. Now, for the low gravity, we're going to find out by direct experimentation what is safe for humans. And I suspect that that will be a lot easier than the more important question, which is what is safe for actual biology? Because there's a lot of things that like to be very touchy. And it doesn't matter, for instance, if most organisms are good with it. An ecosystem is based on a careful alignment of all sorts of components. If one of those is completely malfunctioning, that ecosystem does not work. You can put a different one in there. There's a lot of variety out there, but it'll be new ones. If you want to replicate all ones, though, you're going to probably have to be very close. And I would not actually be that surprised if 1% of gravity worked, but I also wouldn't be surprised if even Venus's 89% gravity wasn't enough. Douglas Wilkinson says, as a black hole spins faster, its event horizon contracts. Why? Um, let's see. Okay. So, I'm not actually sure if that's true. Um, well, yeah, I guess I'm not evaluating them for truth. I'm just reading their yeah. statement. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> so, the, the more acceleration something's under, the more, more general relativity uh, con you know, contractions going to have in that regard. So, I suppose that might be true on it. But at the same time, with something spinning around, the escape velocity from its surface or would be lower. So I think that might be very dependent on the circumstances. An identical black hole spinning faster, if that was all that changed, I think would probably, man. Well, let's leave that one academic. If anybody who is a better astronomer than me happens to be online, feel free to answer if that definitely is or isn't true. Um, you know, there's a question that comes up sometimes, things like neutron stars is, uh, if something has an event horizon combined with like a neutron star that's very close to black hole mass, right? Very close to there. If I pushed it just a little bit faster so its relativistic mass increased, or because it's moving away from me, it would have a, a higher speed of light for me to actually get away from it to reach my eyeball, would it appear as a black hole? And those kind of questions get to be that very uh, difficult part to intuitively explain the area of general relativity that I, I'm thinking, how oh, is it? I'm about Sean Carroll. I almost said Steve McCare because he's a friend of mine. Sean Carroll. I have some very good answers on his blog about it. So you probably know him. He's a very popular astrophysicist, um, but I remember he had a very good one on that topic, if memory saw So, Sean Cale, great guy to listen to for those blog posts on those. Nulano says, what's the most efficient way to pack a large amount of living area in a small volume? Would it be a large shell world or something like a Topopolis coiled into a giant yarn ball? <laughs> um, in the end of the day, your, your, your limitation is about how much heat you're dumping out. 
And that can be non-obvious because it's not just treating it like a sphere. At a big scale, you almost have to treat it just like the surface of a big sphere, but you have crinkly surfaces or materials that would reflect away that frequency of radiation. So you've got a material that's reflective to the frequency of light that, uh, well, say 12 microns, the, the frequency of, of infrared light that humans and human temperatures give off. If you had a material that was reflective to that frequency, you could get away with packing things in a little bit tighter. Um, but only to a certain point because most things aren't truly reflective. And after a few bounces, it gets absorbed. So basically, a sphere is your real limitation on that as your density, you know, you, you, how dense it is, is going to expand. You got that sphere. But you can make a very good case for a topopolis. It will depend a lot on the actual size. The topopolis has the cool thing that it is buildable. I would actually tend to guess. Um, well, it's it's, it's a, like a rug board, only it isn't the more of a, a hexagonal cage system around a star. That might be better, though. Oh, Bucky Haps. See the Megastructural's Compendium episode. This reminds me, I was thinking about this as, as sometime after November, we should do the Fermi Paradox Compendium again. Uh, I should redo that one, and we should have, because it'll be long, or you doing some voiceover on that. What do you think? We can discuss it. Okay. <laughs> So for those who didn't see the Megastructure Compendium, when it got to be almost two hours long, I, I knew it was going to be long from the script. I, I asked Sayo if she'd be willing to help me record things, so we'd alternate the entries and uh, and save my voice a little bit there. And I, I think I, I if I redo the Fermi Paradox Compendium or the Spaceship Drive Compendium or the really big compendiums, it just gets longer each time I redo them, it might be nice to have some alternating voices. <laughs> Maybe we should ask people if they actually liked having multiple narrators. I think almost everybody said yes in that, though. It might be because some of the folks are like, wow, I can actually understand this person using a speech impediment. <laughs> well, when you focus on it, you do really well. Oh, Oof. when I'm not, though, which is most times. So. Uh, Barg's, uh, Baris Sardikman. See, I can't pronounce it either. Nice Sorry. person. <laughs> I apologize. <laughs> Good night. Do you think humanity can develop a gestalt consciousness or group mind in the future? If so, how and why? Uh, I, I don't think that humanity as an entirety would ever do that. But I certainly think certain groups might. You know, do try various options like hive minds, networked minds, etc. Um, though it, it, there's a lot of a difference on there. There's a character, was it Belisarius Cull uh, from the 40K setting from the Mechanicum, Archmajos Belisarius Cull, who's got a guest out of a consciousness, and actually one of the best books in that setting that really rises above just you know setting books um, was the uh, was it called The Great Walk uh, by Guy Haley that features him, and that one actually has a treatment of how guest out consciousness emerged in his particular case. I don't know if it would make as much sense to you if you don't know the 40K lore on there, but I was kind of impressed with that book. Um, now the flip side of that is how does something like that emerge and, and there are so many different ways that it could emerge because when we talk about various unifications of, of existing brains you could have people networking their brains together you could have copies of your own on there you can even have options where like I decide I'm going to get married to this person and we're both going to share our fourth grade memories onto each other's brains you know so that's probably part of that person you know, it's like, uh, you one person or you can even have things like that you could have Someone who said, I'm sending out copies of myself to all these distant stars, and when they come back together, we're going to compress their memories and feed them all into each other's heads. And you see something like that in um, House of Sons by Alistair Reynolds, which is another phenomenal book. So um, there's so many ways that could arise, but I don't really think, you know, I don't want to have my brain mixed with anybody else's per se, and I suspect that most of us would not. 
or would not want anything too deep if we did. So I don't really ever seen that being something humanity did. That seemed to be a, a big craze out of like the 60s and 70s of the uh, the human hive mind. But uh, I really don't think that that would be something I personally You mean it was do, so. all something coming out of uh, Star Trek? And, well, yeah, well, not, they actually predated Star Trek to, be, to some They way, seem but, to be really, really into that. Yeah, there's a lot of folks who very much like that, that particular concept of the hive mind. I would not want that, though. Uh, but So I would see that as something that happened a lot, but at a smaller scale. Brian Van Buren, is there any reason to build Bernal spheres instead of O'Neill or McKindry cylinders? Honestly, Happy belated no. birthday. Yeah, I, I would say honestly, no. I, I, the Bernal sphere is really popular because it's kind of the original. And for those of you who know, what we call an O'Neill cylinder, also called an Island 3, was uh, O'Neill's third design. He'd done the original Bernal sphere from like the 30s that uh, Bernal would come with. And then he did... Uh, the second slightly larger form, he's like, let's try a cylinder version, and that became Island 3, the third design. Um, spheres aren't horrible for that purpose. They really aren't. They're, they're, the idea being that a sphere is kind of your most compact thing um, for surface area and cost, but um, it doesn't give you, you know, even gravity across the surface, and that seems like a cool option. I could certainly see a lot of spheres being used, but I don't see that as the mainstay, and um, I think especially given that spaceships do better when they are um, a lot longer than they are, you know, wide and tall, uh, just because they hit less debris. That definitely favors a cylinder setup, and since you really would want your space station to be able to move and have uniform gravity, I think that you would see that a lot more than the sphere. Divide by zero, get cake, says, if your own personal starship with somebody, or somehow, faster than light travel, landed in your yard, where would you go first? Uh, one other note on that while I'm thinking about that. If you really want that lower gravity, you just put the circular cap on the end of a, uh, a cylinder. So you have a long cylinder with two circular caps. And so that would be the equivalent of a bonus sphere widened out to give you more uniform gravity for most of it, but then the lower gravity too. Where would I take an FTL spaceship if I could do it? Um, well, first, I'd, I'd probably want to look, I mean, from a strictly logical perspective, I want to find out where the thing was manufactured at and then take the ship there to see what other cool technology they had. Uh, <laughs> but um, let's see. Where would I go if I could just check out any place at all? Hmm. It would be nice if for all yeah. these different things you're being invited to, if you could just get there like this instead of that, having to spend hours flying, wouldn't it? That's true. But I mean, uh, you know, I mean, I don't know that I need to get there in less than an instant because I mean, light gets there in what, like a tenth of a second or something like that. Maybe so. not an instant. Yeah, but maybe a, a half an hour instead of five hours. E even traveling around the Earth at like a, a, a thousandth of light speed would be pretty impressive. <laughs> um, I don't know. I would be very tempted just because I, I have Lord of the Rings in my head at the moment to go check out the mortal planes of, of Pluto. Oh, sorry, Chiron. Chiron. Uh, but um, that's about the only thing that really comes to mind right now. I would love to just kind of check out a lot of things, actually. Uh, Christian Tavakal, you occasionally see his work on our, our, our show, he did a nice long sequence of like, almost the, of the landscapes of so many different planets. Uh, you can find just Google Christian Tavakal, T A V C A L. And um, th th those are places I would love to visit, but I wouldn't really want to stay. And that's kind of what comes to mind with FTL travel. So the next question here is from Scurvy Sam. Is dark matter the interaction of expansion on matter and time, thus creating dark gravity? I'm going to need you to repeat that because I kind of got lost on the Scurvy name. Scurvy <laughs> Sam says, is dark matter the interaction of expansion on matter and time, 
creating dark gravity question mark since we don't actually know what dark matter is i can't just say things like no but there is no reason to think there's any connection between dark matter and uh dark energy it's we use from dark in physics as kind of a in the same way like uh, people say i i would love to see what the x18 could do and it's like well i never find this thing out there and it's like well x is what we call it when it's a prototype we, we take that off when it's done and I said, what's the X blah? I have to do the X blah. I was like, well, one of those is a fighter jet and the other is a printer. They have nothing in common besides the fact they have the X there. And that's kind of dark means that same thing, unknown. Um, now, insofar as there's a ton of dark matter and there's a ton of dark energy compared to normal matter and energy, um, that's, that is something they have in common, as is the mystery. But there's no reason to think they really have anything else going on. So... Uh, check out our episode, Dark Matter Technologies, uh, Black Horse and Dark Matter, or Dark Matter, or Dark Energy, or Dark Flow, uh, for more discussion of that topic. As you can see, Isaac has devoted a lot of time to making episodes on this topic. Yeah. <laughs> Marcus Fabrice says, Hi, Artemis Third is slated to land near Shackleton Crater, where mm -hmm. traces of water and ice were discovered. To what extent do you think the prospect of lunar water, or fuel, is guiding today's space programs? Um, I mean, for the purpose of getting industry on the moon, it's a really big one to know what our access to water is, because water is such an easy thing to make fuel out of, uh, you know, if you got electricity compared to, you know, the entire smelting operations you might need to do an aluminum-based fuel, an oxygen aluminum one. Um, hydrogen's a great one, too, and of course, it's very easy to liberate from water. So, in many ways, what we're most interested in on the moon right now is where can we find water at, and where can we find it in decent abundance to be able to land at. I said, well... I don't think we want to be using, you know, as in Robert Heinlein's uh, book, uh, where the moon was being mined out for all its water to send back to Earth for some reason. Um, you know, we won't want to be doing mainstay production of rocket fuel off water from the moon for very long. But there's a big difference between you know all the exploration period and and uh, and you know later mass production. And if we can find a place that's got a uh, you know few kilotons of ice nearby that could fuel our efforts to get to Mars really, really well and to build up the space industry. Michael Ines says, what would we need to do in order to protect the process of the local group of galaxies merging and also expanding it to include as many other galaxies as possible? Hmm. Okay, so the idea there is that our own galaxy, which is, you know, a cannibal, um, there's, well, Way, way back in the early days, near the dawn of time, there were probably a thousand or so local galaxies in our cluster. That's, you know, that's right here. Uh, and those are more about 30 of them, some of which are really big, like us and Andromeda, and some which are still kind of small, and some which kind of hazily into them. They're all getting smushed together. And think of that as the primary galaxies that the most of the universe's time is going to consist of. Um, as opposed to the early galaxies, at least, couldn't, you know, we live in that has a lot of conglomerated ones. Uh, like the Milky Way is like 50 of them. Last I checked, that was the count was 50 galaxies that we eaten. Um, and uh, everything that's not in that gravitationally pulled cluster, you know, is stuff that's expanding out and is never going to reach each other. So most of the universe's time together is going to be these little conglomerated galaxies of maybe, you know, 10 trillion stars, that kind of zone, uh, surrounded by vast, empty nothing. Just no, you know, superclusters get ripped apart. And the question there is, what can we do to make sure that those galaxies though maybe just a little bit past us you know in terms of what would stay there naturally come together or come together sooner or you know if they're on that cusp how do we get them to back here and we discussed that in detail in the fleet of stars episode 
I would say you could probably ramp up the mastery coin 30 you know galaxy chunk we have here to probably close to a million um, in terms of just using classic Shikata thrusters and a few of the upgraded versions we discussed there like the Kaplan thruster. Reverend RV says, do you think the Cambrian explosion is a great filter? It is said that intelligent life developed early on Earth. Do you think it's a filter at all? Would another perfect world need a Cambrian explosion? Oh, you know, this is a hard one to answer because uh, my usual bet is that Yorkiotic cells is probably the other one. That's one that John Michael Godier and I both share is we tend to think the, the big one for life on Earth would be Yorkiotic cells. But you can point to an awful lot of them, and here is the issue. We know so little about the actual composition of the planet back in that era. It is, it is a big question mark. We know way more than we used to. It's amazing what bits of information we've extracted, but it's so hard for us to actually look at what that process was with any real certainty. We can look at something and say, well, based on what we know, it looks like the eyeball evolved 20 different times or 27 different times that we know of, and same for multicellularity. And probably more than that, if, the, if those are just the examples we found real fossils of, uh, or you know, fossil lines on. Such being the case, we could conclude that those are probably not great filters, or even filters of any real kind, with the caveat that there could be uh, factors on wars that made such a thing unlikely to develop once, and you know, once versus 40 times. If once the condition's right, it can do it easily. So we can't rule them out completely, but they're not good filters. Um, the Cambrian explosion sometimes seems like an almost inevitable result, kind of same with like the oxygen situation. But until we really know, you know, when oxygen went from being a waste product to something we breathe, as well as being a waste product, and carbon dioxide became the waste product, uh, until we know more about those compositions, until we know more about what plants look like in their early phase, not just Earth, but other plants with atmospheres on them, it's so hard to really talk for something about what those early filters might have been on life. So. It's just hard to say. I think they're a good candidate for one, though. Jamie Russell Christian, Middle Earth. You a super chat of $2, and they want you to make a James Webb Telescope prediction discovery. Oh, that's a tricky one. Um, I think it's going to discover an awful lot of Earth-sized planets that are not currently able to be seen by other stuff. That's a very iffy one, but at least the temperature zone, right? Let me phrase that. I think we'll be able to detect a lot more stuff that's in the habitable zone range. Um, and that, uh, that's probably the big one to be looking at there. Obviously, there's so much that you can do with that, but it's really more the frequency range that's looking at, and it's, it's a good planet hunter. All right. We had another super chat here as well from James HYI. Thank you for your $20 donation. Just wanted to say thanks to you and all the people working behind the scenes to make this incredible show for us all. You're all the best. Thank and you. thank you to the Orioneer and Sindri for feeding us questions yeah. today and helping with the moderation of the channel. Especially because one of them is in the area, Sindri right now is in the area that's basically getting hit by that hurricane in the Atlantic. So thank you very much for showing up. Yeah, stay safe. Uh, Last question before the break here is mm -hmm. going to be from Modern Solutions. Hello, Isaac. Using your background in physics and science communication, how long would you go about working towards a globe spanning, towards having globe spanning electricity before 2040? Oh. The trick about global spending uh, electricity is can you find an easy 
easy way, both economically and politically, to uh, to build you know that those kind of big superconducting trunk lines, or even not necessarily superconducting ones, because that's depending a lot on the materials. But that would be the ideal one. You get a nice mass-produced superconductor. You have the ability to do that a lot more profitably. Um, but in terms of the actual network, I mean, we already kind of do have a, a global energy network. It's just. Uh, it could use improvement, <laughs> so. But I think that that the way that I would go about that is is just kind of be pushing that constant idea of energy diversification. Solar is making progress. It is so close to being that tipping point energy that's going to actually lower energy costs. Um, but at the same time, even then, it's nice to have that diversity of energy. So I think I've made it pretty clear. I'm a big fan of uh, of solar, of nuclear, and of hydro when you can use it, but. I don't think any of the power types should be discarded. You know, there are times when geothermal is just perfect for the job. And until we get much better batteries, there are circumstances where it's very nice to have hydrocarbons. You know, the hydrocarbons you made in a lab that are typically carbon neutral. You know, we'll see how that stuff emerges as the economics shift. But uh, it's time for us to go to our intermission break. We'll see you in about three or four minutes. So you might have noticed that our live stream usually has a schedule of recent and upcoming episodes flipping around while I'm talking, and one of those was on our upcoming episode on colonizing planetary rings, and was partially inspired by the illustration Ron Miller did of J1407b for NASA that a lot of folks refer to as the Super Saturn because they are so enormous compared to even Saturn's immense rings. I'm guessing it's a topic that interests our audience since a post comparing those two planets, J1407b and Saturn, was our most popular audience posted topic on our Reddit forum last month. If you didn't know, SFIA has dedicated forums on most of the major platforms, and our Facebook, Reddit, and Discord groups are the largest, each with thousands of members. So if we don't get a chance to get to your questions today, those are great places to ask questions and talk with folks about these topics we discuss on the show. I'm often there on those forums myself too, but it varies on how busy or crazy life is. We always link the forums in the episode descriptions to make them easier to find, and that's one thing I love about social media, it helps you find the 8,000 other people who share your deep interest in an arcane topic, when a population of 8 billion, that's only 1 to million people. Incidentally, during last month's livestream, the question came up about special and general relativity and how much time slows spaceships down or speeds them up as they leave our gravity well. We had a follow-up question on that in the comments section afterwards, asking about the GPS devices specifically. They had heard that we adjust the time on those, but they weren't sure if that was a special relativity or general relativity thing that we had adjust for. The answer is both. Gravity slows time and things moving fast have slowed time too, and it's the net potential energy needed to escape an object's gravity that controls the time dilation. So in the center of Earth, time runs slower, even though the force of gravity there is zero, as everything around you pulls equally in all directions. It runs slowest in the center of our Sun, and as an example, folks looking to predict supernova would need to factor in that slower time at the core of a star in terms of fusion rates, as well as the effect of being closer or further from the galactic core, where time runs slower yet. Very very loosely, you can calculate how much time is dilated by gravity by knowing your escape velocity from that object and plugging into the normal special relativity Lorentz equation as your velocity. That will give you a good guess for which is stronger in effect on a GPS satellite, its speed or Earth's gravity, 
and unsurprisingly since GPS satellites are in pretty high orbits, three times further from Earth's surface than that surface is from a planet's center, the effect of gravity is smaller and time runs faster there. And the satellite moves quickly but the higher your orbit, the slower you need to move to keep it, so that special relativity factor is diminished by lower speed. As a result, at that height the weaker gravity makes just under 46 microseconds extra pass there in a day than on Earth, while the speed of the satellite knocks off just over 7 microseconds a day, and the net is that the GPS satellite clock will be about 38 microseconds ahead each day compared to Earth, or an extra day every 6 million years. Tiny but big enough we've measured it, and it is as predicted, further proving Einstein's theories, and you need to account for it in experiments. So great question during last month's show and afterward, and with that said, and with that said, let's get back to today's show and more of your questions. Well, getting pinned back up with cameras and microphones. <laughs> it's always hard to remember how long I record the intermissions for, but they are exactly the length of time necessary to run and get me coffee, basically. <laughs> my, my wife is eating candy at the moment. That's sweet. We all be, I'll be talking out loud to myself while she finishes chewing. <laughs> I said that we're going to need another fair because... I finished my bag of candy. Which, which one did you get that from, Giago? It was uh, Ashtabula, and they had an old-fashioned candy shop, and I was able to get it in this little bag, and now I've ate it all. <laughs> what were the ones that, that was it maple, the, the maple candy we went down to? Uh, maple cotton candy. Maple cotton candy, That was candy, from the uh, great Giago uh, County Fair, Richard's Maple Products, because they were <laughs> celebrating their 200th anniversary. Okay. <laughs> All Congratulations, Giago right. County, on the 200th anniversary of your fail. <laughs> Dago says, Hey Isaac, what are your thoughts on concentrated solar power? It seems underrated compared to PV solar. The technologies for CSP seem more accessible, and they don't require trace metals like PV. Uh, and uh, Well, truth be told, you don't really need trace metals for PV either. It's just that a lot of the ones we use for it are better that haven't used those. Um, the thing is, and I like concentrated solar, I do not like concentrated solar power for the purpose of having them on like my house, for instance, because we were talking about in the future of solar power, what happens when you build like a solar thermal tower? Well, you tend to get boards getting burned up by a thing. They just, you know, they, they fly through the beam, as it were. So you can either do that relatively minimally, which is certainly an option, or you can try to find an area where the boards aren't going to be flying or so forth. Although that doesn't mean you can find other options. Like I'll, one of the problems we have with berries, and if you didn't guys know, we, uh, Started a blueberry farm not too long after we got married up here, <laughs> but um, you have to worry about birds coming in mass, and of course you can't shoot them. For one thing, there's thousands of them. Uh, for another thing, I'm pretty sure the EPA would show up on that one. <laughs> but um, you know, you want some way to deter them from your berries, and uh, so there might be that some technology like that would fix that problem. Because usually, when we're talking about concentrated solar or solar thermal, the issue here on Earth anyway is that fear of it killing off local life would just be dangerous. So one little fix like that might make that something much more viable. Smaller versions of that or home molten salt reactor, uh, molten salt reactors, molten salt energy storage might work for that too, but we just keep it more minimalistic. 
However, it works amazingly well in space, and especially on places like the moon, where you can make a nice thermally insulated container by basically just elevating it a couple feet off the rest of the ground, because there's already a vacuum around it. Asher Griffiths actually has a question that I really uh, think is insightful. I'm digging into he says, hello, we have sent a lot of signals into space for aliens. Why do we assume that aliens will be able to translate it into the original message? <laughs> Wouldn't it be more likely to appear as noise or other messages? Um, okay, so one, the quantum signals are very compressed. But what do we mean by compression? In, when you're doing compression algorithms, what you essentially do is try to take every copy, every pattern in that, and remove the pattern, right? They move the, the into... So you're not having it repeat. Like if I want to do an image that has 5,000 blue dots, and as a very simplistic example of that, instead of writing the particular tone of blue each time, I would simply say each of these positions uh, was that shade of blue one time, instead of having to repeat it over and over again. Um, and that's an example of how you would do a compression. Uh, there's a lot of other ways you do compression, but they all come down to basically anything where there's a repeating pattern, uh, we remove it and replace it with something that says repeat pattern. So a compressed signal looks like noise. Your ideally compressed signal looks a lot like noise. Now, mind you, you're never going to actually have a compressed signal that truly looks like noise if you know what you're looking for. Things do stick out of it. You're not going to go for that ultra compression that would make it look like it was totally a random signal, right? Because then you'd have problems telling it was. You need some pattern in there that's minimalistic. Um, that's the thing to keep in mind. It would be very hard to spot signals like that. The thing is, we're not really looking for those kind of signals because we're looking for is people who would be sending one to us, in which case you don't really do much compression. Now, for them being able to see ours, uh, here's the thing, we didn't compress our signals in the past. There was no digital compression until we even had digital stuff. So all of our early signals, many of which were very loud because our receivers were bad, our radio stations were few, right? Loud, loud megawatt signals that were not compressed is early and astronomy is history so they have all that time to be watching as we slowly switch over signal types to be able to start telling what we're using now for a signal now as to how they would figure it out it's all about quantity and repeating patterns that's the whole key to it why are there languages that we can't translate from the past is it because they're mysterious and the human mind has changed no it's because we only have a few hundred wars scattered over centuries and many different villages in an era where dialects were changing constantly and there was no dictionary. You can't translate a fragment of a language like that. But that's not mystery, right? They say that if you can't even do that for the human mind, how could you do it for an alien? How many times would you have to listen to a radio program before you notice that every day on that same radio station somebody said, blah, 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 blah. And you start realizing, wait a minute, they mean good morning, they mean good night. It repeats the same time this planet rotates every day. The frequency of that thing spikes up. So it's pattern recognition, right? How does an AI understand these things? And that's exactly what things like AI are very good at. So it's not that we'd ever expect them to like hold crack it like you do for the crypto program in the back of the paper. You're thinking, what's their AI be able to do? Uh, what can their computers do? And that's all a frequency issue. And if you've got hundreds of channels playing, you know, content for a century all day, every day, that's billions of words. That's trillions, I think, of words. You can run the numbers yourself. That's a big database to be able to crack. They're still going to mess things up, though. You have to be like, well, you know, human children look like cats and dogs when they're younger, and uh, many people have claws. I know because they said so. Humans have claws. They, that person got their claws into somebody. You know, those euphemisms, they're going to screw people up, right? But they might be able to figure some of them out, you know, but other ones are just confuse them. 
Sargis Sarge says, Isaac, do you think it is inevitable that planetary colonies like Mars would eventually desire or even Delcare independence from Earth? Would a war in space be fought over such things? No. Uh, yes, but no. We always talk about how one day uh, Mars is going to be a broken off colony from Earth. Well, here's the thing. You probably are never going to have a, a Mars splinter colony from Earth Gov, right? Because there are 200 plus governments on this planet, maybe which are made from federated governments. And whether it's like a separate colony owned by a corporation from the get-go, or it was funded by, say, the United States or China, what you have is a Mars colony that is Chinese, a uh, hundred miles away on Mars from some one that's American, near one that's Japanese, near one that's started by Musk Incorporated, whichever, all there. Who are they rebelling from as a group? Is the one that's upset with the U.S. just going to happen to convince its U.K. neighbor that it should also rebel from the crown? And that's unlikely to happen simultaneously. Plus, and here's a big one, your neighbors are people you have the most in common with. And that often includes reasons why you dislike each other. <laughs> It's generally easier to get along with the people who are far away that you don't have that much in common with. The other thing to keep in mind is, we show some colony of like 10,000 people decided to be its own independent nation. That's certainly possible. We have countries that are that small, but, um, you know, the United States has 300, I don't even know how many, 300 some million people right now, divided into 50 states, uh, and divided into something like 3,000 counties. Uh, and those are individually divided into what we have 25, 27 townships here in Ashbula County each of which has their own various sub-levels of government, but one of these local townships. Of the the 3,000 counties, most of them have over 100,000 people. It'd be three steps below a Earthgov, as it were. Then you got a township of 10,000 people, right? Or 2,000, like the one we're in. That's bigger than most of these colonies we see in these shows. That's a lot to be saying. Well, you know what? That's enough people to have our own justice system. You know? So I think you would probably see something more like, we are tired of being part of the, you know, we're tired of being a territory, we want to be part of a state. So we're going to apply to be part of the Mars states, or we're going to apply to be part of Wyoming. Or we're going to probably be part of this county. I think that's more where you'd see these things happening now. Hello, Isaac. What would be the most advanced... Hello, com- <laughs> Hello, Isaac. What would be the most advanced computer, prosecutor intelligent life could possibly make before reaching universal limitations would that be the matryoshka brain or something greater i, I feel, what was that second word there prosecutor you said it is written prosecutor but i wasn't sure if that was what they uh, meant yeah that can't be right so um, go with most advanced computer all right so what would be the most advanced oh i bet it would be or processor processor okay as I said, it's very important on these things to get them to get them in there legibly <laughs> sorry it, it was <laughs> spelled but it was a different word yeah um so was what was the last bit of that? That runs with Mashkuroshka brain, but um, would that what would be the most advanced, a Mashkuroshka brain, or would there be something else that could be the I mean, most advancements? A tricky one to discuss there because at that point in time, you're discussing what's their level of technology, and you know the old ENIAC computer that took over an entire building is obviously not as advanced as the ones we're running the hallway on right now. There's three computers in this room, four, not including phones and tablets and stuff. There's like five computers in this room six computers in this room and they all have more power than ENIAC had and this is not that big of a room and let alone a building like ENIAC was. ENIAC by the way was that first computer in World War II that was electronic um, and uh, so sizes or even power is not that good an idea um, for advancement right as to how much power you could have running it since power presumably is, is literally scaling up on this a bit 
you could have one that was being run on, you know, a conglomeration of galaxies. There's no particular reason why you couldn't do that. In which case, you know, that would be, what, basically K4. Uh, and if you're curious what we came up with as a K4 example, watch this week's episode, because I finally got around to calling something that. It'll be coming out this Thursday. I grab the aliens. So. <laughs> uh, another question here from C.R. Smith. Thank you, C.R., for your super chat, $5. Hey, Isaac and Mrs. Isaac, love your... Don't spit your coffee out across the room, husband. That's not polite. <laughs> hey, Isaac and Mrs. Isaac, love your videos. My question is, what are we to... What if we learn to build in four spatial dimensions inspired by the Dark Force trilogy? The Dark Force trilogy? Oh, Dark Force trilogy. Okay, um... There is a Dark Force trilogy too, but that's that's out You're of, still uh, stuck on Mrs. Isaac, I know. Yeah, I, but I still am, but switch to spatial dimensions here. Um, the Dark Force trilogy by Six and Lou. Um, <laughs> but um, excuse me, I just mispronounced his name too. Um, so yeah, no, I am stuck on that Mrs. Isaac thing. I know you spilled no your coffee ever, yeah, right across well, the desk. <laughs> for those who know, when you get married, at least in the states, they say I now pronounce you, you know, Mister and Mrs. Isaac Arthur in all case. And if memory source he said Mr. and Mrs. Isaac Fowler Arthur or something. I don't remember. But uh, you'd have to go back and watch the video. So um so um I suppose that would stick in your head more considering you got a new last my best man's pants were split open Uh, and we try to keep that off the camera. You're announcing that on He kept it concealed. It was <laughs> yeah, quite good. Of course, today we yeah. had someone here looking at a pool table for sale, yeah. and they call. They said, "What is Mr. Fowler's name?" It happens fairly regularly. My wife is much more famous than me locally. So, <laughs> um, would you like the question again? Absolutely. <laughs> what if we learn to build in four spatial dimensions, as inspired by the Dark Forest trilogy? All right. So. If you can build in four spatial dimensions, you're not doing it in this universe, I wouldn't think. But you could conceivably have something like, uh, for those who know D&D, Bag of Hoarding. For those who know the more sci-fi, you told me called Hammer Space. Uh, a very technical concept of Wile E. Coyote pulling a hammer out, or rather the ostrich or roadrunner pulling the hammer out to hit Wile E. Coyote with out of nowhere. And you get some very interesting options that I think we looked at in the Warm Wars episode way back. But uh, in a case like that, you might have... You know, uh, you open up the door to your refrigerator and kind of like the TARDIS, it's bigger on the inside than the outside. But, well, that sounds cool as a concept that it doesn't really work out very well in a practical sense where you dwell on it much. Uh, and uh, there's also kind of a difference between having a portal or someplace you store something versus, you know, something that's actually just four-dimensional if you open it up. Um, I don't think you could really do it inside this space because it's kind of like, how do I build a three-dimensional object on a piece of paper? And I said, well, are you... You could take the piece of paper itself and fold it up into a three-dimensional object, but the topology is still the same. It's still a you know, 3D, a 2D object. So I don't think that would really work out very well. But it would obviously be a huge... You'd probably be able to violate conservation of energy with it, at the very least. But I'd also be worried about things turning the black horse lock because the density would really kick up a lot very quickly. Okay, I think we've reached the favorite part of the program. At least it's my favorite. I I hope it's everybody else's. (laughs) We have five minutes left. That means we are going to try to jam as many questions in as quick as possible, and you're going to give 10 to 15 second answers. In theory, yes. (laughs) (laughs) So we have Lord Mon. Are you more in favor of planetary colonization or orbital colonies? Uh, It's not really either or, but orbital colonization strikes me as the majority because it's – 
are you in favor of cities or rural cabins out in the middle of nowhere? You have a lot more people in the cities than rural cabins. Hey, Isaac, do you think you'll live to see the point where advances in life extension will outpace people's aging? I sure hope so. Yeah, people ask what my favorite technology I'd love to live to see is, and I was telling them it's a radical life extension technology because uh, let's do all the other ones. Yeah, so I'd like to live to be like 5,000 and you know, so forth. Horace the Great, thank you for your $10 super chat. What are your thoughts on Bob Odrick and Eric Lintz's version of physical warp technology, which instead of traveling the speed of light, you manipulate time dilation or time capsules? I'm not familiar with enough to really comment on it, but usually with warp drives, it's always a question of how are you doing that compression? And if it involves negative energy or negative en uh, matter, uh, you know, find me a mode of the stuff first before we discuss how to really use it. Hey, Isaac, are you planning to create any new merchandise soon? I'm looking for some really cool sci-fi concept shirts, and I can't imagine anyone could get it, at least the concept part, done better. Uh, we really do need to restart that. I stopped doing merchandise with the one because it looked like the other site was being horribly... Uh, Misrepresented. vandalized. Yes. <laughs> so, um, and so we, that's why we stopped putting those out there. I, I, I don't know if they might even still be selling stuff, all I know, but... Uh, I thought I restarted something with Brick from, uh, for those who know Nebula Standards, a company that I'm a kind of a co-owner on, what kind of, I'm a co-owner on, we have our own team there that does a lot of stuff from terms of merchandise and stuff as an extra add-on for creators, and I, we wore the design phase for that, but I kind of got distracted, I don't know where that's actually sitting at, so it might be, you know, beep, 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 beep. Beep, 10 seconds, 15 seconds up, might the answer is, already done. that's I a great suggestion, thank you. Yes, thank you, great suggestion, <laughs> we'll check on that. <laughs> How do you think space colonization will affect geopolitics and the balance of power on Earth? Which countries do you think will likely benefit, which would not, and how would they benefit? I think everyone will benefit, but everyone also feels screwed over and touchy because they're humans, so that's exactly how that will happen. Whoever gets it the most will be pissed off that everyone else didn't actually invest enough into it. Uh, kind of like the U.S. always feels like everyone else is kind of cheaping them out on how much they put into space development. Everyone else is going to be like, you guys are stealing all this stuff that got developed. So humans being humans, we will all benefit and we will all feel like somebody screwed us over. Isaac Arthur, what's your opinion of David Pierce's ideas of wireheading and paradise engineering? And how likely is it that technology will result in a far future utopia? Uh, neural hacking in general to me is not really a good way to make people happy, although it's probably a very good way to make them happy, technically speaking, but not really a, a healthy way to do that. So, What is a pirate's favorite element? Argon. You got it. Great job. <laughs> Nulano, do you believe that the Artemis Project is the right direction to take humanity into space? It's it's better than not doing it. You, you, this is one of those examples of, you know, whether we go to Mars Force, the Moon Force, whatever it is, a lot of times with these things, I just like to see us making forward progress on them. Thank you, Merv Johnson, for your $20 super chat. And thank you also, Matt Van Grisvenen. Sorry for the mispronunciation. Thank you for your $5 super chat. Isaac, you're very creative. You cannot think of any way to cheat the heat death of the universe. I didn't say that. I can't prove there's any good way to do it. Uh, there's a lot of ways you could potentially uh, cheat it. I thought we looked at a couple of those in the uh, in the uh, postponing the heat death of the universe episode, or maybe it was Ion Stars, but proving it's another story. <laughs> Isaac Arthur, NASA says Saturn's moon Titan is covered in oceans of oil, more than exists on Earth, and deserts of plastic. It didn't come from fossil fuels. Should we reassess if all of our oil is? I believe um, that's from fossil fuels. Well, I, on the on the one hand, we tend to have a somewhat naive notion of how fossil fuels are formed in the first place. They're not dead dinosaurs, yeah, but mostly. 
but uh, methane is the most common hydrocarbon on this planet, and you can burn that as a as fossil fuel, obviously, if you would like to think of it that way. Uh, there's methane's insanely common in the universe, right? um, and you can burn it just fine. But um, it's not necessarily the same thing as some of the other ones. There's a lot of formative processes that can turn that you can make these things in a laboratory. It's just that it takes more energy to make them that you get out of burning them. So, for instance, if you really want to have a gas burning engine, you can use nuclear power to create gasoline, you know? I think I need a 15-second timer. This could be a lot more uh, fun with something going yeah, buzz. No, I guess ask a geologist. They'll give you a better answer on the formative process how it work. But there's going to be a lot of question marks on something like that, too. Jason Solo, thank you for your $2 super chat. Thanks on RNA forming in basaltic glass. Say that again. Thoughts on RNA forming in basaltic glass. Uh, if that actually is something that happened, please send me the link because that sounds cool. <laughs> what do you think about cars and roads on the moon and asteroids? Would they exist in anything more than a limited capacity? Would personal cars exist or car space elevators? Um, I don't, I, I think whenever you have like a tram system, you wouldn't have personalized ones. That's, that's too much of a traffic issue. You know, if you're sharing a line like that, uh, though that maybe, maybe not. Um, but cars, yeah, I think you'd have, it'd be spaceships, but, uh, I believe the difference there is it's so easy to build a spaceship on a low gravity place. It's just keeping the thing airtight. So yeah, it's more, I think more like a personal plane, but it actually walk. Yeah. What, um, when do Road's you... probably less common though. Except inside a habitat. Are you ready? Yes. No. When do yeah. you think we'll reach the level of nanotechnology described by Eric Drexler in Engines of Creation and the Diamond Age by Neil Stevens, such as diamondoids and other compilers? Um, I think, and again, because Drexler discussed quite a few uh, levels of that, so to speak, um, great book. But uh, I think the, the key thing on that is we don't know if that's going to be something we get like next year. Because someone's like, oh, I found that one little clever thing to turn that key, and now within a couple of years it's maxed out. We got the you know super technology, or one of those things that we just never really get to because it's not that practical. Um, I expect nanotechnology to be a big factor in our life, uh, probably in the next decade if it's already in there. But to the point that we often see it in sci-fi, mm, longer, maybe even never to some of those degrees, but longer. We have a super chat from Pewter Hacker. Thank you for your $20 donation. With Spin Launch recently receiving $71 million in investment, and with new architectures such as the Tethered Ring, do you think that active structures are poised to gain some traction? I hope so. Um, you know, I, I think um, there was a question whether or not to do some more episodes on active support launch systems, because there's a few other ones like Spin Launch that are gaining momentum. Um, one of the cool things about uh, SpaceX is it got us really doing well with reusable rockets and getting flights down. One downside of it is it kind of pushed away from some of these support structures like the, uh, you know, like Tether's ring, like, like orbital ring. So I'd love to see more on that because I don't think the answer lies with one or the other. But uh, anything that gets funny to those is great. I can't tell you which one's going to turn out to be more economically sound in the midterm, though. And besides rotating habitats, what do you think will be the most common megastructure? Giant space gun. <laughs> power collectors but yeah giant space gun sounds cooler i think that's actually uh the end of the questions that i have posed here wow. and we are at a little after five o'clock so that was a longer than five minute lightning round but i'm going to say some of those questions went longer than 15 seconds <laughs> probably right. so i think what are we doing now we are going to go get some foam board for the bees to winterize them we are going to work on winterizing the bees and hopefully 
that will go smoothly and no stings. Yes, and, and, and keep them moisture-proof because bees don't like that. We keep bees. <laughs> so, <laughs> really? so we're going to go ahead and sign off there and uh, think giant space guns that shoot bees. Uh, <laughs> That's a scary thought. I would think more like a space elevator with the bees going up it. In fact, all right, don't click off. I had a thought. So I went to a bee festival last Saturday, and they actually had a bee space elevator made out of clear see-through like gutter and they had the bees inside the building Mm -hmm. and they go up the bee space elevator and fly out the top so they don't sting people that seems like a kind of neat idea now if they can make one that's ten thousand kilometers high that would be even cooler (laughs) 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 we will see you on thursday for episode gravity aliens and in the meantime, feel free to check out any of our many, many other episodes, which is now like 350, 300, whatever, many hundreds of episodes. And um, remember, what's the answer to life, the universe, and everything? 42. Happy birthday to you. <laughs>